Thank you for your donation to Carbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.carbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening and welcome to this Bible study on the Book of Revelation. Uh, my name is Naji Mawad. Naji uh, will work just fine. And uh, we've been uh, doing Bible study here at St. Ephraim for the past, I think, for about 10 years. Uh, and it's been weekly for about uh, five years, I think. I don't remember exactly. We are going to begin the study of the Book of Revelation today. For the past seven, eight months, we've spent quite a bit of time preparing for this. Uh, as many of you know, the book of Revelation is not easy. Uh, it has given rise to many, many fanciful explanations. And there are reasons why this is so. There are reasons why those fanciful explanations exist out there. What we're going to do, hopefully, through this Bible study is bring us, all of us, back to reality. Reality grounded in the Bible. Reality grounded in the church. On the one hand, if you're here for sensationalism, hoping to discover some new secrets, I might save you some time. Not going to happen. I have nothing to tell you of, uh, of that sort of stuff. On the other, if you're here because you'd like to understand what the Lord wanted to tell us in the book of Revelation, then I can assure you that your life will be transformed in more than one way. Because that's the promise of the book. Let me tell you what I'm going to do today. I'm going to give you a couple of principles on interpreting the book. How I'm going to go about it. I'm going to tell you what the book is not. And I'm going to give you an outline. And the reason why I want to do just that is because... I suspect that 99%, well, let me, let me be charitable, 90% of you present here did not read the book before coming. And I really do need you to read it. So I'm going to give you an outline and I'm going to ask you for next week to read 
the whole book. Don't worry about understanding it. That's not what I'm asking. There's no test, by the way. All I want is for you to be at least familiar with what we're going to be talking about. I need to assume that you've read it so I can move at a certain pace. Let's first focus on what we're going to try and accomplish here. By the end of this study, my hope is to do it in, well, my hope was to do it in 28 lectures, but uh, it's quickly fading away. We'll see how long it's going to take us to go through it. By the end of the book of Revelation, what we will have accomplished is, well, we, we, we'll accomplish three things. Number one, the book will no longer seem like a badly translated text from Chinese. Or let me put it this way. It would not sound like a computer-generated text from Chinese. It will make sense. Will it make complete sense? Will we have exhausted the meaning of the book? No. By no means. But it will make sense. In fact, it will make so much sense that, that's the second goal, your own life will begin to make sense through this book. You will read your life through the book of Revelation. And the third goal, and perhaps the most important, you will no longer see the church the way you see it today. That I guarantee you. You will no longer see the church the way you see it today. Because most of us Catholics have not taught to recognize what the church is. That's what this book is all about. The book of Revelation is the most Catholic of all books. Before I proceed any further, there may be some of you here who are not Catholic. So let me explain to you where I come from. This Bible study is Catholic in the following sense. I hold that the Catholic Church teaches the truth, all of the truth, nothing but the truth. I'm not here to fabricate truth. I'm not here to invent truth. I hold that the Catholic Church is the Bride of Christ. And he's got only one. And she is it. And I hold that the Catholic Church is the means through which God wants to save us. So, my proposition is entirely Catholic. And it's going to be through the whole Bible study. I'm just letting you know right now, so you know what to expect. Overall format. What I'm going to do is um, write down the time when I start. And of course, I forgot a pen. Thanks. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I am not known for being exact. So I'm starting at 8.10. I actually took five minutes of your time. I hope you'll, you'll forgive me. I'm going to try and speak for about 15 minutes. If you have questions regarding what you heard, 
I would ask of you to write it down. And I will go through them at the end of this lecture. Right after that, after an hour of our time, we'll take a couple of minutes of a break, and then we'll go through something that is maybe peculiar to this Bible study. There is an extended question and answer period that can address any question you may have, not just about this particular um, subject or lecture. If you have a difficulty with a specific text, if you have an issue that came up, if you were talking to someone, if you're trying to address certain moral issues, all of those are talked about during that part. And typically, it lasts even longer than the lecture itself. That's about an hour and a half. So I'm going to try to follow this format and be as uh, formal as I can so that I can get you out of here for those of you who need to leave within one hour. I don't want to abuse your time. Yes. Yes. Very good question. Thank you. This is weekly on Wednesdays at 7.30. All right? And we'll try to start on time. This is not about you. It's about me. All right. The book of Revelation, principle of interpretation. There are, I can see there are a number of faces here who are not with us through this whole period. So those of you who were with us, bear with me. I need to recap certain things I talked about. First of all, I would like to let you know that there, all those lectures that we went through have been recorded. And Michael isn't with us today, but he will be here, hopefully. And he has those CDs available. And I'm also working on, I've had enough requests that I'm actually putting out a, Bible, uh, a website where those same talks will also be available for those of you who would like to, um, to, to get, get your hands on those talks. Of all the talks that we've done so far, there is two series that I really recommend you listen to, if not nothing else. The one on the covenant and the one on the four senses of scriptures. Those are foundational. They're absolutely foundational. Without those two, you're going to feel a little bit lost. So I'm going to try to help you now. And oh, before I do that, I highly recommend that you take notes. This is not the kind of subject you can just sit and listen it is, I mean, I'm trying to make it as easy as I can, but it's not easy. All right? So do take notes. It's going to help you to learn. Because I'm going to have to build on what I have talked about. I can't repeat too much. Otherwise, we'll be here for three years. Okay, so it's a word to the wise. Take notes. The four senses of Scripture. Why are those important? Because those four senses are the principles by which we actually can read Scripture. There are four. There are in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 101 through 115. Paragraph 101 through 115. Go, if you have the Catechism, open it up and read those 15 paragraphs. They're very short. If you don't have the Catechism, get a copy. The four senses of Scripture are the literal sense, the analogical sense, the anagogical sense, and the anthropological or moral sense. Best way to understand those four senses are through the temple. This is how it used to be taught to Catholics as part of the general catechism. Use of the word temple. The word temple 
in its literal sense means what? The temple in Jerusalem. The temple, the building. That is the literal sense meant when we say the word temple. By analogy, the, anal the analogical sense is the sense that applies to Christ, that finds Jesus in Scripture. By analogy, what is the temple? It is the body of Christ. Why? In the Gospel of John, what did he tell them? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. They did not understand what he said. They thought he meant the literal sense, the temple. He meant the thing that the temple was pointing to himself. That's the analogical sense. The anagogical sense is the sense that points to history and end times. So in that sense, the temple is what? It's the church. Because the temple was the symbol of the reality which is the church. And finally, the topological or moral sense is a sense that applies to me, today, as an individual. In that regard, how does the temple apply to me? Well, I am the temple. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. At least I'm supposed to be. You're with me? Literal, analogical, anagogical, moral. The temple was destroyed. Christ died. The church on earth will come to an end at the end of time. We die. The temple was destroyed and was raised in glory as the church. Christ died and rose from the dead. The church at the end of time will be glorified as New Jerusalem. And when we die, if we've been faithful to Christ, we will, we will rise with him and we will have a glorified body. You see how it applies? So the temple, therefore, has these manifold meanings. For it is what we call an icon. Scripture is full of those images. The three senses, analogical, anagogical, and moral, are called the spiritual senses. And the Catechism teaches us that the spiritual senses build upon the literal. Meaning that if I don't know what the author intended when he wrote what he wrote, then I am not going to be able to understand what those three senses are. I've got to understand the intent of the author when he wrote it. Literal, by the way, does not mean literalist. There's a difference between the two. The literalist sense is the meaning of the words put together. So when Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches, we all know that he doesn't mean that literally. He's not a vine. We're not branches. But the literal sense is pointing to something very profound. A profound reality of the union of Christians with Christ. You see the difference? Sometimes, though, the words mean exactly what they mean. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink His blood, you have no life in you. That is, to be, that is to be taken literally. He wasn't speaking metaphorically. 
in this study, we're going to focus on the literal sense, of course, because that's the one that is mostly lacking. What you will notice when you speak to people who do love scripture, who study it, but who do not have this basic foundation in the four senses, that they actually tend to, to go off on tangents by interpreting scripture apart from the literal sense. And I'll give you some examples, some of which are actually very funny. Nowhere is this important or critical as it is in the book of Revelation. Nowhere. Why? Because in the book of Revelation, St. John speaks symbolically. He's using symbols, and a whole bunch of them. And by the way, there's a couple of, uh, I think there's a whole series we've done on symbols in Revelation. We've covered numbers, animals, colors, um, precious metals, and um, don't know what else. It's, it's in that series. But he speaks symbolically. Or, should I say sacramentally, everything in the book of Revelation is something pointing to something else. Let's take as an example the famous 666. Anyone not familiar with 666? Please raise your hand so I know where, what to expect. Alright, you've all heard about 666. What did St. John mean by 666? Literally. Well, someone will say the devil. Right? You've heard that explanation before, 666 is the number of the devil, right? Well, that's kind of really interesting because it actually contradicts what's in Scripture. St. John is very specific. What does he say? This is a human number. He tells us, this is a human number. It's a number of a man, not a number of the devil. And what is that number? Well, as you know, Hebrew, as Latin, does not have numerals. In English, we have a set of symbols to represent numbers, which we call actually Arabic numerals. And the funny thing is that the Arabs use the Persian numerals. Just like you kind of wonder. You know, what's up with that? Be it as it may, we have a, set, a separate set of symbols representing numbers. In Latin, you know, there is no such thing. You use V and X and I and L and C and D to represent numbers. Therefore, you can look at a word in Latin and come up with its number. How do you do that? Well, you look and you look at all the I's and V's and C's and D's and L's and X's in the word as they occur and you calculate its number. Hebrew works exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. So, St. John tells us this is the number of a man. Well, you take the word Kaisar Neron, spelled in Hebrew, and you add up the total and you get 666. In fact, in some older manuscripts, we also have the total being not 666, but 616. Why? Because they dropped the N from Neron. They would say the Hebrew way, Nero, that we would say today. You drop that N, you get 616. 
Alright? That's the first meaning. That's the literal meaning. But I told you everything is a symbol. So the next question that comes up is, alright, what's up with St. John? Is he being a wise guy? Why doesn't he tell us Kaisar Miron? Right there. Why does he just write it down? What's up with the 666 mumbo jumbo? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to give you the answer right now. I'm just wanting your appetite. I'm just showing you how the senses of Scripture are so important. We have to be very careful not outstepping our bounds. We have to be very careful to know when we're starting to speculate of what the meaning is, meaning we're stretching it beyond what it really contains. And I'll tell you right now, I'll do that. But hopefully I'll tell you what I'm doing it. Okay? Four senses of scripture. Very important. No less important is the covenant. And the covenant is typically shocking. To those of you who are not used to talk or hear me talk about the covenant, I'll tell you right now, it is shocking. Why? Because you're going to discover something about God that you may not know. Or you assumed that God doesn't do such things. Everybody knows that God sends forth blessings, right? Right? It sounds like these days that not everybody knows that God actually sends forth curses. And by the truckload. By the truckload. God curse. I don't mean that God says swear words. I mean an actual, effective curse. The opposite of a blessing. The opposite of a blessing. Let's take a quick listen from the book of Revelation itself, from the word, from the mouth of our Lord Himself. There are other passages that I will be pointing to, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. But for the time being, if you turn to the book of Revelation, and oh, by the way, I didn't mention that. Bring your Bible, please. Bring your Bible. I know it's a Catholic Bible study, but I'd like you to bring your Bibles. And if you do not have a Bible, or wondering which one you should use, for a Bible study, this is the one I'd recommend. Um, the um, Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Ignatius publishes it, and also Scepter, which is the uh, editor for Opus Dei. They also publish it, publish it. That's the basis for the Navarre Bible. If you want a Bible with good, good, solid moral commentary, highly recommended the Navarre Bible. All right, so um, that's the Bible I use for the Bible study because it is very precise. It's a little bit dry. For personal read, I tend to prefer the Bible from uh, the, uh, the Bible of Jerusalem, but the old edition, the pre-70 edition. That would be my favorite for a, uh, a personal read. But for Bible study, that's the one I recommend. That's the one I use. Here's the Lord. I'm reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Theatra, 
write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. I will strike her children dead. This is not a quote from the Old Testament. Some may want to say, well, you know, the Old Testament was a God of wrath and vengeance. And then we have the New Testament. Here Jesus who comes along, you know, with a hippie dress, the guitar on his back, singing Kumbaya, and just wanting group hugs. I will strike her children dead. What is that? That's a curse. Why? Because children are a blessing. Always. We'll see it when we, when we touch upon the book of uh, Habakkuk the prophet, chapter 3. We'll see it in Deuteronomy. Children are always a blessing. A giving of a child is a blessing. A taking away of a child is a curse. Why? Because of the covenant. What is the covenant? You know that we call the Old Testament what? The Old Covenant. And then we have the New Covenant. What is the covenant? What is the covenant? The covenant, succinctly put, is an exchange of people for the purpose of enlarging the family. The covenant is an exchange of people for the purpose of enlarging the family. Therefore, the covenant has at its background the family. The family. This is a family business. When we enter into a covenant, especially the kind of covenant we're talking about here, there is a strong party and then there's a weak party. Let's take an example. Marriage. No, I don't have in mind the man as a strong party and the woman as a weak party. They're both the weak party. Why do people... First of all, did you know that the sacrament of marriage is the only sacrament that the couple impart upon each other? The priest does not impart that sacrament upon us. He stands witness for Christ. But he doesn't impart that sacrament on us. So why is it that we come and get married in the church? Why do we get married in the church? What is the purpose of that? Here's the purpose. A man and a woman are supposed to recognize that they simply cannot do what they're promising each other to do. It is beyond human means to live up to the promises of marriage. To love and behold in good times and bad times and in health and in sickness. It takes a saint to do that. Most people don't realize it. If you study those words of marriage, it takes a saint to infallibly live up to those words. 
Just as when God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, what was their response? Everything God says will do. So it is with a man and a woman coming to get married. Everything those words say, I'll do. It's impossible on our own to actually live up to those words. I don't mean it is impossible for a man and a woman to stay together for a long time. They can, like dead bodies, sitting next side by side. They can do that. They're not living up to the words of that promise. We can't. So the man and the woman, wisely so, recognizing that they cannot, come to the church. And when they come to the church, they basically are saying, telling God, Lord, we cannot hold each other to those promises. So we're willing to enter into a covenant with you based on your promises. We're going to come here and because our words is weak, we can't invoke our word to seal the covenant. The man cannot say, by my strength alone, I'm going to hold myself to those words. The woman cannot say, by my strength alone, I'm going to hold myself to those words. So what do they do? They come, being the inferior party, and invoke the superior party. They invoke God's name. They seal their marriage using God's name. They have entered into a covenant with God. They have used His name. Now, God is basically saying, telling them, if, since you invoked my name and my glory, if you are faithful to this covenant, I will bless you. And I will make you fruitful. And I will make you saints. Because after all, that's why God invented marriage. Marriage is God's creation, not ours. What is marriage? It's a saint-making machine. You put sinners on one end, you press on a button, you have saints that come out. That's how it's supposed to work. Alright? If you don't believe me, try it. That's how it works. Or it's supposed to work this way. If we are faithful to the covenant... And God says, if you're faithful, I'll bless you. But if you're not, because you've invoked my holy name, I will curse you. Now, practically speaking, how does this present itself today? Are these words that are just spoken to you poetry? Are they some sort of theoretical principle up there that has absolutely no impact in our life? Or are they governing our lives today, even though we're not aware of it? I'll give you a good example. My wife and I have six children. Sorry, seven. <laughs> I meant to say six girls and a boy. Seven children. And sometimes when we meet people, they'll suddenly become very agitated. And they will start asking us questions. And by the way, we're not the only one. Rich and Gwen sitting in the back do also have seven. And I know a whole bunch of families who have large children. I'm not saying this because we're the only one. 
large, not large number of children. This, something's wrong tonight. Sorry, large number of children. <laughs> I'm getting there. So, they'll look at us and they'll get agitated and suddenly very, very impolite. Are all these yours? Yes, they're all, and, and my children are present. Are all these yours? Yes. What do they say? You must be busy. Huh. What they really mean is, you don't have time to be selfish. That's what they mean by saying you must be busy. Because everybody's busy. I haven't met anybody who's not busy. You don't have time to be selfish. That's what they mean. And then they'll tell me, wait till they become teenagers. And when they say that to me, and my wife, I have to bite my tongue because what I want to reply back is, how long have you been contracepting? That's what they don't understand. That the first curse of contraception is disrespect of children. They don't understand the curses of the covenant. They are regulating their lives and making their lives miserable because not, they have not been faithful to that covenant with God. The first fruit of contraception is disrespect of children. The word teenager did not exist until the 30s, before they only spoke of youth. There were no such thing as teenagers. No one was afraid of teenagers. Teenagers did not kill teenagers. Kids did not kill kids. That didn't exist. The second fruit is the breakup of the bond of marriage between man and woman. And a third is hatred for the body. Self-mutilation, all that abortion, all those bitter fruits, all those curses flow from contraception, which is at the heart of the family and killing the family. Did you know that the rate of, of divorce in the States is about 50%. One in every marriage end up in divorce, no matter what your denomination is. Believer, unbeliever, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, doesn't matter. There's only one group where there's a stark exception. Folks who practice NFP have a rate of divorce less than 3%. That's the covenant. What is the book of Revelation? It is the application of the covenant, pure and simple. It is effectively a covenantal lawsuit, and we're going to see that. It is Christ, who is King of kings, Lord of lords, applying his royal authority on earth, all of it. That's the gist of the book of Revelation. And that means our life today is regulated by Christ through his church. I don't expect you to adhere to what I just said right now. I hope that your conviction will grow as we study the book. Let the book speak for itself. How am, how am I going to approach this book? My formation is not in theology. My formation is in computer science. I have a PhD in computational geometry and graph theory. And here I am teaching scripture. 
as Mother Angelica said, God writes straight lines, writes straight with crooked lines. Why am I saying this to you? Because in mathematics, which is the branch of my study, before you can prove anything, you must set down very clearly those guiding principles you're going to follow. Those axioms you're taking for granted that will drive your, your study. You have to clearly enunciate those and you have to stick to them. Otherwise, your study is suspect. That's the same approach I have with the book of Revelation. I'm going to tell you right now what are those principles I'm going to follow in the way I interpret this book. And you can hold me to them. The first one, the four senses of Scripture, the thing I just talked to you about. The four senses of Scripture apply to the whole of Scripture. The book of Revelation is not exempt. That means, therefore, that the book of Revelation is comprehensible. It isn't this mysterious thing that we cannot understand. We can. It takes some hard work, but we can. The second is that every symbol, almost exclusively, every symbol, every image used in the book of Revelation is rooted in Scripture. So, the double-edged sword, eyes with flaming fire, voice like thunder, voice like trumpets, the horses, so on and so on and so forth. All those images, without exception, are rooted in Scripture or the corollary to it, the liturgy of the temple. Those are two, my main two references, nothing else. The liturgy of the temple and Scripture. I don't have to go to Greek mythology. I don't have to go to Roman history. I don't have to go to anything that is outside the scope of Scripture and a temple. With minor exceptions, and I'll point those out to you. The third principle that I use is, is, is something I call irreducible complexity. You cannot reduce an image to an interpretation I'll give you of it. Just as I did earlier on, I told you 666 is Kaiser Neuron. Well, why, why can't... If 666 is Kaiser Neuron only, why is it that St. John did not say Kaiser Neuron? I can't take something that St. John said and replace it by my explanation of it. What St. John says has a meaning that is irreducible, cannot be reduced to an interpretation I will give you. I can, give you, I can only give you a facet, an aspect of it, not the whole thing. Because it is multifaceted. It has so many implications. It is so rich that it cannot be reduced to any one interpretation of it. And by the way, mind you, this is true of all of Scripture. Um, irreducible complexity. And the fourth principle I'll follow is that I read the book of Revelation with the mind of the Catholic Church. Essentially, what I'm going to be talking about must conform and must not violate the teachings of the Church. Those are the four principles I follow. So what, what the book of Revelation is not, 
The book of Revelation is not a book of secrets or a book of codes. A book where we're going to discover things that are hidden that will allow us tomorrow to win the lotto or figure out the stock option or the stock market or know when the end of the world will come and how it's going to come and what date and the hour. It's not that. was never intended to be that. will never be intended to be that. That's not its primary, it's not its purpose at all, not even primary, it's not even secondary. The book of Revelation is not a book to foretell the future. Now, I am sure some of you must be familiar with the famous Left Alone series. Uh, I don't know what the difference is, but... <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, the Left Behind series. Uh, remember the scene, if you've ever seen the movie, where the woman wakes up and her man is shaving in the bathroom and suddenly she hears a clunk and she goes into the bathroom and the shaver is dangling and the guy disappeared because he's being raptured and she's stuck. She's left behind. Are you familiar, anybody familiar with this? Yeah? Well, you see, that's a sort of interesting, fanciful interpretation you will get, which is very entertaining. I mean, entertainment value is up there. It's really, really cool to be able to say things like that. For instance, let's take an example. In the book of Revelation, there is a passage where St. John speaks of horses. It's actually 916. Mm -hmm. Here it is. It's a quite a powerful image. Chapter 9, verse 16. No, bear with me. It is in 916. Oh, yeah, 916, not 16, 9, sorry. 916. All right. Here it is. The number of the troops of cavalry was twice 10,000 times 10,000. So these are the cavalry. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels were bound at, at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released, who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, to kill a third of mankind. The number of the troops of cavalry was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Twice 10,000 times 10,000. What is that? 200 million, right? Yeah, 200 million. If, you, if your Bible is reading 200 million, it's a lousy translation. Very lousy. St. John could have said it differently. His intent was to say twice, 10,000 times 10,000. Because of the symbolism of the, of the numbers. Okay? We'll get, we'll get into it. Here's... Here's Hal Lindsey. 
explanation of that phenomena. That's when China, the might of China will be allied with the technological advance of Japan and they're going to invade Europe. 200 million of them. It is arresting. It's, 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 it has this hypnotic effect. Wow, China and Japan are going to invade Europe. I mean, you know, it's much, much more interesting, it would seem, than the twice 2,000 times, you know. You know it, 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 it's, it's like a movie. Now you're talking. It's action. Well, I don't know anything about, you know, the military intention of China. I can't tell you anything about it. Uh, mind you, Japan being a light to China would be the same thing as saying Israel is a light to the Arabs. I mean, that's the kind of enmity there is between those two. So, if that ever happens, maybe it happens, who knows. But certainly, those who read that passage in Hal Lindsay's book learned nothing about the Bible or about John, St. John's intent. Now, to put things in perspective, in 1870, there was another preacher who had an attempt at interpreting this text. Here's what he came up with. His name was G.L. White. He lived about 1870. This is what he said. The population of the whole earth is about a billion. Okay. Actually, it's worth reading. We have a few more than one billion inhabitants on the earth. But of that billion, about 500 millions, one half, are females. Leaving an average population of male inhabitants of about 500 million. And of that number, about one half are minors leaving about 250 million of adult males on the earth at a time. But of, of that number of adult males, about one-fifth are superannuated, meaning too old to fight. And he adds, these are statistical facts. This leaves exactly John's 200 million of fighting men on earth. And when we prove a matter mathematically, we think it is pretty well done. Now you've got to realize that in the 19th century, the, the, the buzzword statistics is like DNA today. <laughs> you understand? It's, it's the new thing that you can use to do, say, lots of things with or about. Now, St. John describes in his vision the horses. The riders wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur issued from their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur issuing from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. You know, pretty impressive imagery. Hal Lindsay explains this in terms of helicopters. This is what they are. How did White explain those? John is pointing to the modern mode of fighting on horseback. 1870, right? What's going on in 1870 around that time? You've got Buffalo Bill fighting Sioux Indians for, for, for General Sheridan's 5th Cavalry. That's the state of the world, at least in the United States. John is pointing to the modern mode of fighting on horseback with the rider leaning forward. 
which to his side and to the side of one looking on at it, on it the distance, why is the rider leaning forward? Because he has to fire. And you don't sit in the back of the horse and you see movies and you fire because you can very well sh you know, shoot your horse. So you don't do that when you fire. You lean forward next to the head of the horse. You make sure you're not going to shoot the horse. All right? So he's saying the rider is leaning forward. Which to his sight and to the sight of one looking on a, on at a distance, St. John spoke of nothing about at a distance, but would appear as the great mane of the lion, the man leaning on his horse's neck. He would, in fighting with firearms, have to lean forward to discharge his piece, lest he might shoot down his own horse that he was riding. Now I want to ask my friendly hearers if it is not as literally fulfilled before our eyes as anything can be. Are not all nations engaged in this mode of warfare? Well, I don't know about the nomads in Arabia leaning forward, but be it as it may, do they not kill men with fire and smoke and brimstone? Do you not know that this is just this is ignited gunpowder? Could an uninspired man in the last of the first century have told of this matter? This is his explanation of that text. Everybody's leaning forward on their horses and firing. What is the underlying principle to all these explanations? That we are it. We are the generation of the last times, the end times. That's the presupposition. They're all writing with a notion that we're it. In our time, all these things are going to take place. We're that important. We just can't be any other generation. I mean, mathematically, the laws of probability are against us. There's been 20 of those centuries that went and came, and none of that took place in this way. But, oh no, we are it. St. John was writing about the communist Russia, fighting us, and the great red dragon, of course, is Russia, USSR, coming come down, and atomic bombs, and really, really, St. John had nothing else to do but to write about all the, those things. So, if you're, if you're familiar to that kind of explanation, what I call the... fortune-telling kind of explanation. Yes. Please erase them. They may be entertaining. They may be fun to hear to. Actually, there is uh, recently another preacher who, in speaking about the Jerusalem coming from above, the heavenly Jerusalem, explained how this could not happen without significant advances in our ability to control gravity and the building of spaceships. He sees it literally as a spaceship, I'm not sure if it was alien or not, coming down. Why all these fanciful explanations? Because they're not rooted in the literal meaning of the text. They don't take the time to really say to themselves, if I was living at the time of St. John, would those images mean something different? Put differently, this is an example I use over and over. I think it's a good example. Imagine an extraterrestrial anthropologist, well, anthropologist, or, yeah, well, who, who kind of have five minutes on Earth. He just zooms by and grabs the first book he can find, and then he has to take off. That's all he can do. And the book he grabbed is 
Alice in Wonderland. And he studies the book and then writes a dissertation on life on Earth. You got Queen of Hearts, who's got nothing else to do but to stay off with their heads. You got rabbits, who are these kind of interesting creatures. They're late. We don't really know why they're late, but they're late. And then they just jump in holes. And then you have those girls that just jump after them in the hole. That's life on Earth. Earth is this big forest with rabbits who are all late and girls who are just jumping in holes where there are these queen of hearts who are angry. That's Earth. Why? He does not have the context. And oftentimes, we are that extraterrestrial, the scripture. We don't have the context. We don't understand scripture. Meredith Klein, in his book on the book of Revelation, stated that there are at least, at least, 250 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. I think that it's a very conservative figure. This is about 10 references per chapter. I think it's at least twice as much. But notice, St. John does not have one quotation from the Old Testament. Not once does he quote directly from the Old Testament. Never. But it's full. I'll give you an example. Right now. The seals. In the section on the seals, we have the following. This is starting in chapter 6. Now when I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals. In the section on the seals, we have three key images. The first one is that of the Lamb. The second is at the end of this segment where we see verse 9 of chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude which no man could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Okay? And then sandwiched between these two, the Lamb and these people that show up with palm branches, there's a series of woes. Okay? If, if you were a Jew or a Christian of Jewish background, which is the audience to whom this book is addressed, and you knew your stuff, you'd look at this and you see, you would say, oh, yeah, the three feasts where God commanded us to go to the temple. The feast of Passover, the land. The last feast is what? The Feast of Tabernacles. Where we dress in white and we hold palm branches. And sandwiched between those two is a series of woes which are taken from the third chapter of Habakkuk, the prophet. And why is that important? Because in the liturgy of the temple, the third chapter of Habakkuk, the prophet, 
was read during the Feast of Pentecost. The feast that is between the two. That's the framework that we have to work with to understand the text. Effectively, what you have here is three solemn gatherings. Three times when Israel is commanded to go up to the temple to give worship to God. And what this is showing us is that worship is what drives history. Over and over in the book of Revelation we will see that. There is worship given to God, action by God is taken. Worship is given to God, action by God is taken. Over and over again and again. History is the implementation of the liturgy in the Word. History is the implementation of the liturgy in the world. Liturgy is what drives history. Liturgy makes history. In practical terms, in practical terms, if today the world is broken, and it is, in 40 years we have over 270 million abortions, The world is broken. We know it. We feel it. Families are falling apart. The moral fabric of society is breaking apart. If that's happening in the world, it is precisely because we don't know how to celebrate the liturgy. Doesn't that sound odd? Doesn't that sound really odd? that I'm telling you the reason why the world is in such a mess is because we Catholics don't know how to celebrate the liturgy? Isn't that odd? Doesn't that sound far-fetched and fanciful? In the book of Revelation, the word throne, the throne of God, is referenced 46 times. The next book in the New Testament where the book of throne appears in that number is the book of St. Matthew, the Gospels. Five times. The book of Revelation is about the kingship of Jesus Christ. That's what we forgot. That he rules the world. He is the ruler of the world. The king of kings. We forgot that. We don't live it anymore. Liturgy has become for us purely cultic. We come here, we follow the form, we do as we're told, we go back home. No relationship. We don't think of liturgy as a battle. We don't think of liturgy as the means by which we can subdue the world and bring it into dominion for the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't think of liturgy as the way through which we will make of all nations disciples of Christ. We have adopted a very pessimistic view. The world is going from, work, from bad to worse, and that's how it's going to continue to go. No way. This is not Christianity. This is not Catholicism. The reason why the world is what it is, is because of liturgy. Because of the way we are not celebrating the liturgy. 
And now you tell me, how could Catholics celebrate the liturgy in truth when a vast majority of them is contracepting? I want you to think about that. So it isn't about secrets. It isn't about codes. It's not about thinking of what the future is. It is not a book that's going to tell us about the end times. Everything we need to know about the end times, we know already. The Lord told us. He's going to come at the end of time. He's going to judge everybody. The dead will raise. They'll be judged. And then some will go to heaven and others to hell. That's it. That's everything we need to know about the end of times. I don't understand why people make such a big deal of the end of times. When most of us will die before. That's what we should be concerned about. Our end of time. Which is coming pretty quickly. That's no prophecy. In 50 years, half of the people here, if not more, are dead. That's what we should be concerned about. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It is a covenantal lawsuit. I'll show you next time when we start. I'll tell you what I'm going to do next time. So I'd like you to read this book so you understand what I'm going to be doing. I'll show you the structure of the covenantal lawsuit as it was done in ancient times. It has five parts. I'll show you those five parts. I'll show you how it applies to the book of Deuteronomy, which is the covenantal lawsuit par excellence. And then I'll show you how it applies to the seven letters to the churches. That's the first thing this book is. It is a book about repentance. It is a call to repentance. In the book, in the letters to the churches, Christ says it. Repent or else. If you don't repent, I will. What was the first word in the gospel? The first public word of Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near you. It's about repentance. It's about the unveiling of the age of the church. You've heard about the millennium? How many of you have heard about the, the famous millennium? Are you post-mill, pre-mill? You know, all this debate that rages among our separated brothers and sisters. There's a huge debate going on whether you're pro you know, pre or post or, or... What is the millennium? Because St. John speaks about Christ reigning a thousand years. Christ is going to reign on earth a thousand years. So you have a large debate over those thousand years. One explanation that is held by many, many Protestant is that effectively Christ will come down. He will have, you know, he'll be in Jerusalem. And he'll set his throne there. And for a thousand years there'll be a time of peace on earth. Before the end of times. That's their understanding of it. And oh, by the way, this is not a little theoretical debate. There is a group of Christians in the United States called, they call themselves Christian Zionist. This group is wealthy and supports the state of Israel 100%. Why? Because they are under the absolute conviction that when the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt, Christ will come. And he will usher the reign of peace for a thousand years. 
if you want to understand the unwavering support of the United States for Israel, you must understand that undercurrent that says, when the temple is rebuilt, Christ will come. Therefore, we must do everything we can to rebuild the temple. This fundamental, this fundamental error in understanding scripture is fueling the politics of the United States, the foreign politics of the United States. In part. In part. Of course, the Jewish lobby has much to do with it. By the way, you'll hear me, you will hear me speak a lot about the Jews. There is among some people a tendency to confuse theology with politics. So, if they hear me say something critical of the Jews, they'll think, oh, he's against the state of Israel. Or, conversely, if they hear me praise the Jews, they'll think, oh, he's supporting the state of Israel. Please don't do that. It's tiresome and distracting. I'm not doing politics here. That's not my job. When I speak of the Jews, I speak of the Jews in the time of Jesus Christ. The way Paul spoke about them, the way John spoke about them, the way Peter spoke about them, no more and no less. I'd like to make that very, very clear. The last thing I'll tell you about what the book of Revelation is, and this is very important, is a book about the liturgy. I'm going to show you on the, on the moral sense of Scripture how actually the book of liturgy of, of the Revelation maps perfectly to the preparation of the catechumens as they enter the church. That point has been brought up by, some, by actually a Protestant theologian who admits in his book that you must assume an extra-biblical tradition. It isn't brought by Catholic theologians. By the way, most of the Catholic theologians I read on the book of Revelation, I wish I didn't read. Most of them, as far as I'm concerned, are out there, somewhere else, on a different planet. Let me give you a very quick outline. The first seven letters are the preparation, the moral teachings given to the catechumens. The seven seals is the ritual purification preparing the catechumen to receive baptism. Because when the fifth seal is open, the souls under the altar are given a white robe, the robe of baptism. And then when you move through the trumpets and the cups, you're actually making your way into the liturgy of the Eucharist, culminating with the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is the Eucharist. And then the unveiling of the New Jerusalem is the coming of the Holy Spirit, the abiding of God in the soul of the catechumen after the sacraments have been applied. And I'll show you that in greater detail. So, I promise you that I'll give you an outline. This outline, by the way, does not come cheap. Let me tell you why. I've read a great many explanations of the book of Revelation. And many of those have a lot to offer at the level of details. The white horse means this, and the crown means that, and the bow means this, and the sword means that. And it's all good. It's great. 
I've benefited from it tremendously. But what is consistently lacking is an outline, a summary. What is it about? You know, the Gospels. If I ask you what the Gospels are about, you can tell me. You know, Christ was born, then he had the hidden life, then he had the public life, his ministry, then the passion, then he rose, then he gave the, the, um, uh, the Great Commission, then he went to heaven. You told me in an outline what the Gospels, or a Gospel, is all about. Well, what is the outline for the book of Revelation? This outline may change later. But this outline is a result of a lot of prayer. Because I know I'm a donkey when it comes to this stuff. I don't have information in theology. So how am I supposed to come up with an outline? Okay. So, you've got to pray. And pray hard. So God can help you. This outline, I think, tells a good story. It might change, but for now, I'll stick to it. This is how it goes. Chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 1, verse 10, is the prologue. What's the purpose of this book? The purpose of this book is a prophecy. Prophecy doesn't mean, by the way, I'm going to tell you what happens in the future. Prophecy is making the Word of God real today for my life. That's the meaning of prophecy. Prophecy is not about foretelling the future. It's about the moral conduct. How am I to con con conduct myself in God's presence? presence? That's what prophecy means. From chapter 1, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus chastises his church. So that's the first part of that covenantal lawsuit. It's directed against the church. Yeah, let me repeat it. Chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus chastises his church. Chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 17. Jesus warns the world, repent or else. The first warning. So first, he deals with the church. Then, the rest of the book, he deals with the world. And what does he do? He does what he did in the parable of the vineyard. You remember the parable of the vineyard? A man planted the vineyard and went away. He sent his servants so that those working on the vineyard pay him back. They refuse and they kill them. That's the first warning. He then sends more servants. They do the same thing. They kill them. That's the second warning. Then he sends his son and they kill the son and after that punishment comes. Three stages. You see that repeated many times. You see it repeated with the prophets. You see it repeated actually in Isaiah. Many times there's this patterns of three. So the first is a warning. Jesus warns the world, repent or else. This is the seven seals. Then, Jesus chastises the world, repent or else. The seven trumpets. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 11, verse 18. Chapter 11, verse 19, through, through chapter 14, verse 20. 11, 19 to 14, 20. This is the core of the book. In ancient 
ways of writing, the core of the book is not the first chapter or the last. It's the midpoint. So the book of Exodus, for instance, the midpoint is the tabernacle. Guess what? The midpoint here? The tabernacle. And a great portent in heaven? God's tabernacle is seen, and right after that, a woman with the sun, with the, with the, um, clothes with the sun and the moon under her feet. Eight one through eleven eighteen is Jesus chastising the world. This is the second repent or else. Then there is the revelation the revelation, the apocalypsis of Christ. That's what it happens. Right there. This is the part where we see the church being revealed. Um, 11.19 to 14.20 And then right after that, the final warning that comes as actually not a warning but a punishment. Jesus actually punishes the world. And that's from chapter 15 verse 1 through 19 verse 21. 15 1 through 19 21 that's the punishment, the seven cups. So there is first Christ deals with his church. Then he deals with the world. First warning. Second chastisement. Third punishment. Chapter 20, verse 1 through 22, verse 5. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the Catholic millennium. What is the, what is the thousand years? What is the millennium? We are it. A thousand, remember I told you about symbolism. A thousand is a number with symbolism attached with it. It simply means a long period. A long, that's all it means. It doesn't mean one thousand. You've heard about the 101 Arabian Nights, right? 101. Well, guess what? There were not 101. It's just a way of saying, well, yeah, 1001. Same deal. Sorry. 1000 and 1001, right? I just shortened them. I thought 1000 would be really way too long. There wasn't 1001 Nights. She didn't go on telling him story for three years. That'd be stupid. He'd have killed her way earlier. It simply means she told him stories for a long, long time. That's all. There's symbolism in numbers. Right? Just as somebody comes and says, um, here's my two cents. Does he actually give you two cents? There's symbolism in numbers. We use it all the time. But somehow we, we figure those guys don't. So we just stick the sense in a literalistic way. A thousand must mean a thousand. Up to the day. No. The millennium is it. We're in it. Right now. This is it. And then, 2210 through 2221 epilogue. So what it is about. He starts by chastising his church. And he tells them, why is he chastising the church? Because those people are in a bind. Time are really tough. They're tempted to bail out. He chastises them, and then he says, watch out, see what I'm going to do. And then he goes through this process of warning the world, chastising the world, punishing the world, and establishing his church firmly on earth, 
and then revealing what the church will be in the end time. That's what the revelation of Jesus Christ is all about. The mystery of Christ of which Paul spoke in Thessalonians, which is the church. Which is the church. This is my outline. And we'll see if it stands the test of time as we go through it. Um, I'm about seven minutes late. If, if you have questions, I'll take them now. And um, otherwise, we'll, we'll break, and then we'll come back for more general questions. Anyone has questions about what we have talked about today? Yes. And I would, do, I would appreciate if you could jot them down, because I can go through them quicker. But please go ahead. Very good question. Historical critical, the historical critical method is, is a method that proves very valuable when it's set within the context of the church. Apart from the context of the church, it will lead you astray. And it has led a number of people astray. I do use it. I'll give you examples. When, when um, you will see, when Jesus says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in my hand. And he explains in the text what the seven stars mean. He says those are the seven angels. However, from history, we know that the Caesars on their coins used to have seven stars. So when Christ says, I am the one who holds the seven stars, that's a frontal assault on the Caesars. Okay? That cannot be deduced just by a pure biblical-based text. That's one way you cannot do it. Now the other way where we're going to use that tremendously is when we're going to look at the section that deals with Jerusalem. And there we're going to rely on the work of Josephus, and Suetonius, and some of the Antacitus, who were Roman historians, to help us understand historically what was going on. That's how I typically use it. But I do not find much value in some of the historical critical methods that tend to kind of find stratas in the text. Uh, I don't believe in this. For a variety of reasons. I don't find that particularly useful. All right? Yes. Pardon? What does Caesar Nero mean? It it simply means Nero, the Caesar. It is Nero was one of the Caesars, and it is his name codified as a number. Very good. Then we'll see you then next week, and God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.